Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, I'm Darren Lim from the Australian National University and it's Thursday the 15th of February today. I appreciate I'm a bit late to this, but Happy New Year, everyone, and apologies for the long time between episodes. The end of last year was a whirlwind, and the summer period also a very full one, and to be honest, I have missed Alan very much as well. But I'm ready to resume, and excited to dive back in for a new year. And first up, I want to continue the practice Alan and I followed in our time together of using the start of a new year to look back at the lessons learned over the past 12 months and forward with some thoughts about the year to come. And joining me today is an old and very dear friend of the podcast, well known to almost all of you, Richard Maud. Richard is currently Executive Director Policy at Asia Society Australia and a Senior Fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Prior to that, of course, he had a long career in government, including as Director General of what was then the Office of National Assessments, a senior advisor in the office of the Prime Minister and a Deputy Secretary at DFAT. Richard, welcome back and thank you so much for helping me kick off the podcast again in 2024. Well, thanks for the invitation, Darren. It's a delight to be here to, to look back and then forward a bit. Well, exactly. And so what I did in preparation today was to revisit some of the episodes that Alan and I had done in this format and following their structure our discussion today is going to be centred around two big themes. First, how has the past year caused us to update our priors or our model of international affairs? What have we learned? And second, what important trends do we see emerging or declining? And we can combine those together any way we like. I want to do this applied to the world at large first and then to Australia in the world. So let's begin with the world, Richard. What did 2023 teach you? How is your understanding of the world changing and, and what trends stand out? Well, Darren, we have come to expect them because of the times we are in, but it was indeed another very big and consequential year for geopolitics. I was struck by a speech that the US Secretary of State Tony Blinken gave in September last year, and he said that what we're experiencing now is more than a test of the post-Cold War order. It's the end of it, quote unquote. Well, many of us, including Alan himself, made that call some time ago, but it still says something about the times that even the United States has officially lowered the flag and declared end of era. Of course, it's easier to say one era has ended and much harder to say what we have now. We have a lot of disorder and not as much order as we would like, sure. But I think Perhaps one way to think about 2023 is that the contours of the new world, even if far from settled, were etched more clearly last year and etched by change that continues by and large to challenge rather than support Australia's security and prosperity. Mm. And is China the principal engraver of these etchings, so to speak? Well, certainly from a geopolitical perspective, I mean, absolutely. And of course, this has been our lot, our story for some time, but I do think there were some interesting notes last year in this journey. I think you could argue that last year was a year, for example, in which the global dimensions of the West's contest with China became clearer, even if wolf warrior diplomacy has taken a bit of a backseat, at least for now. We've all judged for a while that China wants to be the preeminent power in Asia, but for a great power like China, that was never likely to be enough. China understands and wants to have global reach and global influence. And so how did that manifest its last year? Well, one very evident manifestation was the way in which China stepped up efforts to court developing and emerging countries across the global south. That was a prominent theme through the year. And we're going to see a lot more of it in a speech just this January, Foreign Minister Wang Yi said that China had to unite with the global south because it, quote, shares the same destiny with the vast number of developing countries. And 
2023 was also a year in which China's efforts to promote alternate concepts for global governance gathered pace. So President Xi has uh, several signature initiatives here, which will be familiar, I think, to many of your listeners, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative, the Global Civilizational Initiative, all sitting under a broad concept of what China calls a shared future for the global community. And it's pretty easy when you look at these documents for your eyes to begin to glaze over. But for China, they are much more than a series of high-level concepts. For a start, another mechanism through which China looks to gather countries unto itself. So, for example, if the Chinese foreign ministry is to be believed, under the Global Development Initiative, there's a group of friends that has 70 countries that have now joined. There are 200 cooperation projects that China has kind of amalgamated now under this umbrella. And there's a $4 billion Global Development and South South Cooperation Fund that's been put into operation. So, you know, all of this is not just about fuzzy, high-level language, but it actually about doing things with the Global South and about bringing countries to China. But secondly and importantly, these strategies present ideas, alternate ideas and concepts for global governance and ones that uh, clearly aim to dilute the influence of the West, especially the United States, to weaken the liberal dimensions of global order and to legitimise authoritarian rule. Mm. I actually think back to the episode that Alan and I did, his last substantive episode on, on Cold War Two. I think it was number 112. And in that, I plugged a paper that I'd recently published with my old PhD supervisor, John Eikenberry, where we actually tried to sketch out what a China-led hegemonic order would look like and how it would differ from what the US and, and others built in the post-war period. And one feature of the post-war order is the idea that institutions exist to solve you know, cooperation problems, right? There is a benefit in countries working together, aligning their policies, giving up a little bit of their sovereignty in return for reciprocation from other countries. And if you can coordinate, such as the mutual lowering of tariffs, for example, or the alignment of health standards and so forth, you can generate mutual gains. And the fear that states normally have is that they will do their part and others will defect, they will ignore and, and not do the reciprocation, and that ends up, they end up losing out. And institutions play this role in helping coordinate align expectation. And what's fascinating to me about China's leadership and what we wrote in the paper is that more of it is based upon what they would call win-win cooperation, but we see as them sort of showing that their model of development can succeed and that they will provide help, right, benefits, payments in the form of infrastructure loans, in the form of technology sharing and so forth to enable other countries to develop. But we don't see a lot of this kind of problem solving. And there are lots of problems to be solved. And I'm yet to see in these all these new initiatives really much detail on how China proposes to deal with these problems other than the standard playbook of we will work together, we'll get rich together, but not, you know, moving on into solving global problems like things like climate change, for example. But anyway, that's an interesting dimension thing that bears paying attention to. But of course, China's grand strategy is not going unchallenged by the United States and its partners, including Australia. So how did you see this competitive aspect of geopolitics? And do we need to separate threats or challenges posed by China's pursuit of its interests from the collateral damage that comes from competitive rivalry? Well, it's actually quite hard to do that because, of course, there's an action and reaction dynamic to the contest between China and the United States and between China and the West more broadly. And what China usually regards as a totally reasonable pursuit of its interest is more often than not felt by the rest of us as something akin to a heavy-handed shakedown. So I would argue it's quite hard to separate out the two. But I do think that there are other geopolitical contours, if I could come back to this metaphor that I've been using earlier in the discussion about what is it that 2023 revealed. I think there are other contours that relate both to the way in which China pursues its interests and to the competition that became more sharply etched last year. And of course, we'll keep rolling on into 2024. So one big and obvious one is economic fragmentation. 
to some degree on trade, but more strongly in 2023 on investment, foreign direct investment into China, and of course in the battle to control the technologies critical for military and economic superiority like semiconductors and in critical minerals. And all of this accompanied by the return of industrial policy or what the United States now calls new industrial strategy. I think another contour worth mentioning is the way in which both China and the West are putting a lot of effort into building alliances and coalitions. This is not brand new, of course, it's been going on for a little while, but it was still a very strong theme through 2023. In the West, these are, of course, mostly centred on America. The G7, the Biden administration's efforts to reinvigorate alliances and then newer mechanisms like the Quad and AUKUS. And then around China, we saw through last year, I think, a strengthening of this rather cynical no limits friendship with Russia. The Belt and Road Initiative continues to be important as a mechanism, again, to gather countries to China. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which has been around for a while, and then interestingly, renewed interest in other forums like the BRICS. And China's push in 2023 for a larger BRICS to expand the membership and its support for the way in which the BRICS calls for a more just and equitable international system is pretty emblematic in many ways of the year, even if the BRICS has got a long way to go to be as influential a global coalition as, say, the G7. And then lastly, just on these contours, I think one of the most interesting and consequential of them all is that you could argue, I'm going to argue, that the outlines of a three-camp world became clearer in 2023. One camp centred around the United States, a second smaller and less cohesive one centred on China, and then this large third group of countries from different regions of the world, most of them developing or emerging economies, and they don't want to strongly align with either America and the West or with China. They don't want to choose, as we often say. They want to stay in the middle to preserve national autonomy, and they want to gain from their relationships with both of the major powers. And by the way, and this goes back to the BRICS point, many of them want more say in how the world works and a stronger presence in, in international organisations like the IMF, for example. I use the word camps deliberately because this is not a world of blocks. The borders between these camps are very porous. That is, there's a lot of interaction across them. And the camps themselves are not singular in their internal alignments. There are, you know, obviously differences of views and cleavages within them. But I still think, nonetheless, you can see this three-camp world. Anyway, there's obviously a lot going on shifting very rapidly. It's hard to manage. And I did say that was the last contour, but I'll give you one more. We're trying to manage this at a time when, of course, our own in the West seemingly never-ending democratic recession rolls on. And beyond the West, of course, polarisation of politics rolls on and we have this accompanying crisis of liberalism. And perhaps the most dramatic test of all of that comes in November in the election in America. And so, Darren, well, that's a big, that's a lot from me, too much. What about your thoughts on 2023? Not at all, Richard. We could do the rest of the episode just on what you've raised then. This idea of camps rather than blocks is an interesting one. The role of swing states, I think you've outlined their interests very well, but then how that actually then plays out in different issue areas is something that I'm paying attention to as well. But let me take things in a totally different direction for a moment. I came of age in the 1990s, as we all know, a very benign moment in politics and global affairs, and not the horror of the 9-11 attacks and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, nor the global financial crisis in 2008, really were able to shake me out of what I think of as now a bred complacency about the world being a pretty safe, stable place. And the past eight years or so have been a process of me witnessing that what is possible in politics is actually much broader and more confronting and distressing. As I've said before, my first shock came in 2016 with Brexit and Trump's election. 
which caused me to realize that cultural and economic grievances aggregated by and amplified by modern communications technology with some mischief thrown in can threaten and even destroy what I would say are fairly well-functioning institutions. 2022, of course, saw the return of war to the European continent, and 2023 saw a different kind of shock, but which, like the Ukraine invasion, also concerns the link between violence and politics. And I'm talking about the awful events in Gaza, both the initial attack by Hamas and the response from Israel. And neither the initial attack nor the response is unprecedented across human history, obviously. But the depths of the violence and the scale of the destruction happening in the year 2023 have indeed shaken me. And further, a lot of the political discourse around the world about these horrors has also come as a huge shock. In particular, what I would describe as comfort with or at the very least, a tolerance of certain types of extreme violence that I'm seeing people arguing or justifying as legitimate in order to achieve necessary political ends. And this is coming from both sides of the debate. So this particular recent conflict, for me, is a reminder that you know this violence that has been a feature of politics throughout human history is still very much present in the human condition and in our politics today. You might simply say that I've long been quite naive about the world and 2023 has made me a bit less so. So Richard, I'm wondering if you have any reaction to this idea of violence across the last year and the political discourse surrounding it. Certainly on the discourse side, I wonder if there's a link to the crisis of liberalism that you referred to. People are sorting themselves into tribes, defining themselves by what they oppose rather than what they stand for. And I worry that the growing brittleness of liberalism and liberal institutions could bring us to even darker places if wider conflicts break out. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, a couple of thoughts, Darren. Firstly, I've never seen you as naive. I think probably what you're talking about reflects the fact that Australia, by good luck and sometimes by good design, by our geography, our distance from contested parts of the world has been sheltered by and large from a lot of that historical record of violence that you mentioned, especially in the post-Cold War era. So we did have a good run. And for many people, that's what all they remember. And so we are now in an era where there is nowhere to hide from all of that for us. One of the things that the Defence Strategic Review says is that our geography is no longer protection for us. So this is a different world. It's a riskier one and it's confronting to have to live in that. And we all have to adjust not just our policies, I think, but our kind of mental mind maps to deal with it. On the point about tribalism and the crisis of liberalism, you know, I think I do think you've got a good point there. We've known for a while now that we live in a world in which highly charged issues become deeply polarised very quickly. A lot of very clever people, much cleverer than me, have written about this interesting work about why that's so. There's something about a globalised world, something about the power of social media and its tribalising effect that you said, something about the nature of modern democratic politics that tends to create that dynamic in Western societies. I mean, perhaps precisely because the Israel-Palestinian conflict is so highly charged and difficult to solve, it was always going to be so in terms of polarised reactions. But your main point is right. The broader dynamic is a deep challenge for liberal societies. It means finding truths is hard. It makes policy hard. It means sustaining social cohesion can be quite difficult, and we've certainly seen that in Australia. And, you know, for governments, the middle ground is... Sometimes, not always, but sometimes the right place to be on policy, even with the compromises that the middle ground usually entails. But we do live in a world where, because of all those dynamics, holding the middle ground in policy terms can be fraught. And I think the government has certainly found that on the Israel-Palestinian conflict, even though it seems to me its position is in line with most of our major partners in the West, including the United States. So where next, Darren? What other observations on geopolitics do you have, including on trends? Yeah, 
The trends I sort of came to my attention, I think, are probably go back beyond 2023, but in the past year, they became clearer to me. I spent a lot of time thinking about power. I teach an undergraduate course on power in world politics. And it seems to me that smaller countries have increased agency, or you could say power, to neutralise major power influence over their own policies. You know, it's increasingly hard to utilise external leverage, whether sticks or carrots, to influence affairs that are fundamentally driven by domestic politics. And I think that one of the primary reasons for this is that there is an ongoing global contest for influence, as you said, Richard, and that has the consequence of giving all the other states options, right? And I'm not just talking about Washington and Beijing either. There are regional powers looking for influence. There are wealthy states, usually petro-states, with lots of extra money to spend as well. And all this sort of ends up in the idea that if you are a leader who was besieged perhaps by one power or under pressure, you have somewhere else to go in order to solve your problem and maintain a degree of political authority. And what you're really going to be responding to are domestic currents. I think the flip side to this, my second point, is that this means leadership is even harder than ever. No one, big or small, seems to be having much success in shaping events outside its borders in the face of determined opposition. And I don't disagree with you that China's influence is growing and it's looking to build its influence. But when it comes to the events that make headline news, I'm not seeing much leadership. And perhaps I'm coloured here by the last few months of the Gaza conflict and the wider Middle East conflagration. Both what's happening in Gaza and the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, for me, the latest data points, right? I just have not really seen effective US leadership. They don't seem to have many options that I can observe. And China has been virtually absent, you know, a statement of support, but really leading from behind in supposed solidarity with the global South. The boldest action was South Africa's initiation of a, a case at the International Court of Justice. But that remains to be seen whether it's going to have any lasting impact. So I'll let you react to that, Richard, but sort of, I guess then it's time to move beyond geopolitics and violence. And what else stood out to you in terms of major trends? Well, it is interesting that you mentioned leadership Darren, because that word, curiously enough, that word came to my mind a couple of times when pondering the questions that we've been talking about today. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But for the timing, let me just push on with two other trends that we really must mention. The first one that occurred to both of us as it happened is that most of the world's major meteorological and scientific organisations have declared that 2023 was the hottest on record with those records dating back in some cases to the mid-1800s. So in short, as the science warned us a very long time ago, we are cooking our own planet. And depressingly, last year's COP, which is held towards the end of the year, this is the meeting of parties to the climate change agreement, demonstrated that the political will to do anything really decisive about this rapid pace of warming remains weak where it really counts. So We're going to sail past the 1.5 degree warming mark and we're going to have to deal with the consequences for that. And perhaps technology will rescue us, but, you know, there's no guarantee of that. Second trend, which I think is worth mentioning, speaking of technology, is that we've been banging on for a while about how technology is or will change the world. But 2023 was, of course, the big year for AI and especially for generative AI, notably in the form of chat GPT which really did seem to come out of nowhere for most of us anyway. And this really gave AI a very strong focus in 2023. And we're already seeing a very strong focus on AI this year. In fact, interestingly enough, Ed Husick, the minister, was just on the radio this morning, the day we were recording this, talking about AI and the need to regulate it. So there's a lot of opportunity in AI, but there's a lot of focus on risk. And the risk management of AI is going to be a huge preoccupation for a whole bunch of people, application developers, businesses that use AI, governments and individuals. And partly this is about security risks, but it's also about jobs and communities. So I think, you know, we will see, especially in the West, this very strong focus on further leaps in AI and then a very robust discussion about how 
you best regulate and legislate in relation to a technology that's sort of changing literally before our eyes. Mm. I think we in the international relations sort of scholarly community have got a bit of catching up to do because I certainly agree with you on the societal impacts, but how it might affect international relations is not yet clear. And I've not read much yet that even tries to tackle this. Of course, it could be decisive on the battlefield and we are already seeing vigorous competition in technology standards and that could have a link to domestic regulation that you raised, Richard. And that's actually something I'm researching at the moment in my day job. But I otherwise sort of haven't quite drawn the links for how it would transform the international system, but it's definitely something to watch. But it's all been very mostly gloomy, Richard. Have you got any good news, any positivity from the past year that you can share as well? (laughs) Yes, there's always some good news if you look hard enough past the train wrecks and the dumpster fires littering the landscape at the moment. One is that the global economy by and large scraped through 2023 better than many feared. I mean, the world economy is hardly booming, but inflation does appear now to be falling faster than has been forecast. And even the IMF, which is usually perpetually depressed about the outlook for the global economy, says that a soft landing is possible in 2024. So that's some good news. Yeah, actually, let me jump in on this and make another point about economics, or specifically my area of focus, geoeconomics and economic security. I mean, for all the talk of deglobalization and de-risking, there is one trend that stands out to me, and it's more of a macroeconomic accounting identity than a trend. And it gets in the way of these de-risking narratives, because what we're actually seeing is that many, not all, but many of the countries running trade surpluses, so exporting more than they're importing, are authoritarian. China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, other parts of the Gulf. And this trend was very strong in 2022 and softened a bit in 2023 with the declining oil price. But it remains true that much of the spare cash sloshing around the global system is coming from these governments, which of course feeds into my point about agency in smaller states from earlier. But the bigger point is that if a surplus country doesn't want to further accumulate foreign exchange reserves and its vaults, and they don't seem to want to do that these days, the money has to go somewhere. And it's finding its way back to the West, who are running these trade deficits that need to be financed from capital from abroad. And so you've got this structural reality of deficits in the West, many authoritarian surplus countries, that I think is actually quite a positive thing because it is continuing to enmesh the two sides together using strong economic bondages, even as we are talking of sort of decoupling and de-risking and weaponized interdependence. I think that kind of structural economic reality is with us for some time, and that is a positive thing. Anyway, Richard, I interrupted your good news, so please continue. (laughs) No, that's right. I mean, it's a very interesting point you make, and I agree with it, although, of course, those surpluses also do come with some geopolitical tension because many countries in the West, especially in America and Europe, argue that those trade surpluses are achieved, at least to some extent, by unfair practices. And so we're seeing that, for example, in the tussle over electric vehicles from China at the moment. Back to the good news. Well, let me give you two other points of light. The COVID pandemic was officially declared to be over in 2023. And I think, you know, I do think about this quite a lot. It is still hugely dislocating, I suppose it is for everyone, to think back on the dark days of 2020 and 2021 and how different it is now. And partly that's about vaccines and partly it's just about the way in which the virus has evolved to be less lethal, partly about just accepting we have to live with it. But it does remind me of that famous and wonderfully evocative line in the L.P. Hartley novel, The Go-Betweens, which is that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Well, yes, we did. And it's worth reminding ourselves that another pandemic will come. The scientists warned us last time and they're warning us again, and it could be worse. And will we be better prepared this time? I wish I could be more confident about that. Anyway, that's getting a bit gloomy again, but we got rid of the pandemic, sort of. So my third bit of good news is that I would say that 2023 reminded us that there is room still for diplomacy in this very contested world and that this matters. It matters to keeping the peace and even to getting some useful things done. And that applies 
to America and China as much as it does to Australia and China. And maybe that's a good way to end this part of the conversation, because in a way it links back to your very first question about what 2023 taught us. And I think not for the first time, 2023 reminds us that for all these large structural forces at play that are very hard for us to shift, individuals and governments matter and they can make a difference for for better or ill. Just reflecting on US-China, you saw both structural forces or shocks, you might think of them, and individual efforts playing an important role with the spy balloon, right, which happened right around this time last year. And of course, delayed, I think, you know, a kind of rapprochement that both sides wanted, but made politically impossible because of the optics of that particular event that it seems like was unintentional from the Chinese. But over the course of the year, you know, the Biden administration was willing to put itself out there to some extent, take a few small political risks in order to engage and get the two countries to a point where they're at least talking again. And that's a positive thing. Let's turn to Australia. Let's look at this from an Australian perspective. How have you sort of changed your thinking over the past year? What have you observed that was interesting from our point of view? Well, it was a very busy foreign policy and defence year for Australia. But rather than just sort of go through actions and policies, maybe let me lift myself above that a bit. Because I think one thing that last year underlines again is just how precarious in some ways our perch in the world is. Now, I don't want to overdo that thought because we come to the current era with some very significant advantages and certainly more than many other states. But we do have a lot of competing interests at the moment and a lot of trade-offs we're trying to manage. So let me give you three. So last year, 2023, we took ourselves as a nation some further steps into the world of economic security and resilience, albeit in much more modest ways than the United States. At the same time, we're still a country that's done well out of globalisation. We want to stay as open as we can. We remain deeply committed to integration with Asia through free trade agreements, which is an approach that America, of course, now eschews. So that's one example where we've got, you know, a foot in two different worlds, one of de-risking and separation to some extent, and the other of integration and globalisation. And here's a similar example. So the government would like Australia to be sovereign and self-reliant, but it's deepening our important alliance with America in ways that are almost unthinkable when Labor was last in power including through AUKUS and larger and more frequent rotations and visits of US troops, ships and planes. And here's a third one. The government wants to keep ties with China stable and to manage bilateral differences wisely, as it says, but it runs a foreign policy, as it should, which is heavily geared to the search for what the foreign minister calls a favourable strategic equilibrium in the Indo-Pacific in which, quote, no country dominates and no country is dominated. So we've got a lot of different kinds of balls in the air. In the past, I've described these tensions as a set of principal contradictions that run through contemporary Australian foreign policy. They don't necessarily reflect poor policy choices. Our geography, our status as a middle power, our history, our foreign economic policy culture, the circumstances in which we find ourselves, they all shape and to some extent limit our room to move. And it's also common for states to juggle contradictions and competing interests in foreign policy. But still, when you look at that dynamic, these tensions are evident, they're sharp, they're consequential. Managing them takes up a lot of Australian diplomatic muscle. And we certainly saw that last year. We'll see more of it this year. And we should also expect that at some point, on some issue or another, something's going to break. It just won't be possible for us to keep all of these balls in the air at once. So that's my kind of macro thought about Australia in the world last year and in 2024. What about you, Darren? Yeah, thanks. By the start of last year, the Albanese government had been in office for about six months, six, seven months. And I've made no secret of the fact that I've been broadly fairly impressed by the government's foreign policy. So for me, this year at the beginning was an opportunity to see what nimble diplomacy fueled by competence and focus might look like. And so I look back now and ask, well, what was achieved? 
And the main data to answer this question is, of course, bilateral ties with Beijing. I'll come back to those in a moment. But we also, as you highlighted, Richard, made steady progress on important relationships. I think the climate and clean energy compact with the US is potentially a very big deal. We had a security agreement with PNG towards the end of the year. And to me, all three of these, including China, represent what I might have expected from a well-executed foreign policy. Not earth-shattering, but concrete incremental gains. The one surprise was the Falapilli Union with Tuvalu, which hints at what Australia could be able to do in the Pacific, where we do enjoy a bit more relative power. Although, as I'll come to a bit later, that agreement's ratification seems a bit in doubt. I like your metaphor, Richard, of not being able to keep all the balls in the air at once indefinitely. You know, for me, my model of this is as a middle power, we come up against structural constraints imposed upon us by the international system. And if we try to push past those too much, there are forces that pull us back in. I think we can do relatively more in the Pacific, as I said, because we have a bit more power there. But in the wider world, you know, it's the tried and true method of working with others diplomatically and especially through institutions where we have wielded influence. And I think we would wield influence in the future. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. At the risk of mangling my metaphors, another way of making the point is that on a number of really big foreign policy issues, we're trying to have our cake and eat it at the moment. And we might not always be able to do that. Now, speaking of trying to have your cake and eat it too, Darren, you mentioned the relationship with China, obviously dominated last year. What did you see there? Yeah, I mean, this is the major sort of newish trend. In the last episode of the podcast, way back in November, Ben Herskovich, my colleague here at ANU, and I did a deep dive into that warming relationship. But both of us saw, you know, even in that sort of improvement, a strong sense of transactionalism. That's the word I would use anyway. You know, both Canberra and Beijing have things they want from the other. They both have things of value to offer. And so the bilateral relationship, to me, really seems like it's entered this bargaining phase or a a transactional process. You know, that's an improvement from the overt hostility and chill that preceded it. But in many ways, it kind of resembles what Scott Morrison, our former prime minister, used to say that Australia will only act in our interests. And frankly, is a turn of phrase that's being used by the current government also to act in its national interest. I guess I shouldn't be surprised at the optics of anything approaching friendship and warmth that we might have seen when Xi Jinping visited 10 years ago are gone now. We're in a different world. And so that I shouldn't be surprised, but nevertheless, transactionalism seems to dominate my framing of the relationship, albeit that's an improvement. But Richard, you're you know, an even closer watcher of the relationship to me. Would you agree to that or modify it, add to it? Well, I've done a lot of talking already at this stage of the podcast. Your listeners are probably wondering when this is going to end and what they're going to have for dinner. So let me be quick. Four quick points. First, I think stabilisation has been achieved more quickly than the government probably expected. And in my view, without conceding on any really substantive national interest or principle. Now, there are some people who debate that last point, but I don't think we've conceded on anything that really mattered. Why did it go well? Partly because of care in the management of the relationship by the government, but in good measure also because China, for its own reasons, decided it was time to warm things up. Second, I think stabilisation is likely to survive at least for a while because both sides want it. So that means that the small and medium-sized bumps that come all the time in this relationship are more likely than not to be managed. But there is, of course, always the possibility of a larger crisis knocking things off course. Third, having got to stabilisation, China wants more. It wants to push Australia to a relationship which has a slightly more attractive framework or label than stable and in which Australia gives China more of what Beijing wants. That's more support for China's regional and global agenda and more bilateral cooperation where China has asked, including on investment, defence cooperation and science and technology. They're things that the ambassador here, for example, has mentioned. So my fourth point is that juggling stabilisation therefore gets harder. We don't necessarily want to do more with China in these areas and for good reason. 
And secondly, now is the moment where I think there is a risk that stabilisation becomes an end in itself. That is, people just want to keep stabilisation going for the sake of it rather than a means to an end. I'm a bit cautious about the word or the term transactional, Darren, because in international relations, it often comes with a negative connotation. And I think it's legitimate for the government, for any government, to engage in tactical management of relations with China. After all, that's just what diplomacy is. But the risk comes if that tactical management begins to be at the expense of longer-term interests and of strategy. And that's a trap we must not fall into. The government is definitely pushing on with a lot of tough China policy, but we've also seen a few instances where its reluctance to speak up directly and call China out at ministerial level is puzzling. For example, on China's attempts to push the Philippines off second Thomas Scholl. So I think getting that right is the big challenge for the government this year. One quick statistic that just came across my desk today, shared with me by my co-author Scott Waldron at the University of Queensland. In December, China purchased 90% of Australia's barley exports. And this, of course, is up from zero during the coercion campaign. And December is Australia's largest month for exports. So 90% is quite a large number, not unprecedented, but still quite remarkable. And you can debate that and say it's a good thing or it's a bad thing, but certainly it seems to be a consequence of stabilisation. But Richard, let's try to round all this up and do a fun little exercise that Alan and I enjoyed, which was to give our word of the year. In 2022, we decided on polycrisis, and back in 2020, it was sovereignty. I don't think we did one for 2021. What gets your vote for 2023? Well, I had some good candidates, but I eventually settled on fragmentation because I think it sums up so much of what we saw in 2023. It's a word that's become institutionalised now when we talk about the world that we're living in. It's usually most associated with the global economy in an era of competition and de-risking, but of course it applies as much to geopolitics as to the economy, and it applies in many ways to all the other ideas we've been talking about today, like what norms and concepts should underpin global order or even the divides within Western democracies themselves. So my word for 2023 was fragmentation. I think that's very persuasive, Richard. So I'm going to switch my vote and crown it the winner. My original contribution would have been the term global south, which has been around for a while, of course, but for me, crossed a tipping point or threshold in the past year as being a central consideration uh, and a key organising principle of international affairs. And in many ways, actually, the rise of the global south probably bolsters your case for fragmentation, which is why I'm persuaded by your argument. Now, as you mentioned earlier in discussing the BRICS, Richard, I'm not suggesting the global south is a unified block on anything. Rather, to me, it's the relevance of the developing world or emerging markets or the global south, whatever you want to call them, that reflect, I think, the power trends I described earlier. Individual states have options more than ever, perhaps, and exercising leadership is hard as a result. And even China, which seeks to characterise itself in solidarity with the global south and leading it, as you mentioned earlier, Richard, I think is going to find this leadership even more difficult as its interests clash with local interests among many different countries. There's a very fine line between anti-colonialist, you know, crusader, I guess he's an oxymoron, and imperial oppressor. And that sort of contradiction is going to make leadership even more difficult. So the Global South was my vote, but ultimately I think we can crown fragmentation the winner. All right, let's wrap up then by quickly looking forward into 2024 with one expectation and one hope for the world and for Australia. Richard, what is your expectation for the world? Well, gosh, you know, I think we've learned not to have expectations for the world. But I suppose looking again to find some modestly good news, I do think there's a reasonable chance that US-China tensions will continue to be more or less contained, at least through to the US election, and then we'll see. Both sides have reasons to want to try to sustain a less hostile relationship and 
use a more stable period. Of course, none of that solves the underlying differences and challenges, but it is better than the alternative. I'll take the gloomy side of this question and actually pick up on a point you made earlier about electric vehicles, because I think there is a major risk of a trade war. And as you sort of even foreshadowed, Richard, not with the US and China, but between Europe and China. Everyone knows at this point that China's property sector is going through a slow burn collapse. But what listeners might not know as well is that much of the money that was used or being used to fuel property investment has now shifted, but not into consumption, but into manufacturing. China consumes less than 40% of its GDP, and the global average is up around 60%. And so most economists would agree that at some point, China needs to structurally reform its economy to increase its level of consumption. But that is a very painful process economically and then through that politically. And so what instead we are seeing is the leadership leaning into even more an export-led manufacturing model and seeing really large numbers of, of amounts of capital going into manufacturing investment as a result. The consequence being overcapacity, especially, as you mentioned, Richard, in electric vehicles and other green technologies. And we can already see signs that the Europeans are very agitated about this and could well respond with protectionism, which could spiral into a full trade war. And so, you know, stepping back, how China rebalances its economy following this property bust remains, I think, one of the most important medium-term economic questions for the world, at least you know, from my point of view. Let's try to be hopeful then and ask, what would we hope for the world in 2024, Richard? Well, I ended up picking or saying, let's hope there is not a North Korea crisis on top of all the other problems we have going at the moment. I mean, you could mention many other hopes, including hope that there's not a conflict over Taiwan. But I was looking for an opportunity to drop North Korea into the conversation. It tends to get forgotten in all the focus on China and Russia and Ukraine and now the Middle East. But 2023 was another year in which North Korea made further quite substantial advances in its long-range nuclear-capable missile technology. You know, it now has missiles that can reach the continental United States, and that's long been considered a red line for Washington. And in the meantime, relations between Russia and North Korea have deepened, and North Korea appears to be supplying arms and munitions to Russia for its war on Ukraine. So none of that is a happy story. North Korea has been one of those unsolvable post-Cold War challenges. There's no, I think, break on the horizon in that relation. But we do have this steady development of a state that is acquiring quite substantial and advanced nuclear capabilities. I've got a very specific hope, also sort of coming from a grim starting point, which is that there can be a deal to free the Israeli hostages held by Hamas as soon as possible. I've been paying fairly close attention to the conflict, but I still think I can't appreciate how much the hostage situation in particular is overshadowing Israeli politics and therefore making everything so much worse in terms of trying to find some political solution, temporary or permanent, to this conflict. I just don't think we get any hope of stability or any kind of agreement until that has been resolved. And look, I can't resist adding a second one. I'm sure many listeners, if not all of us, share this on behalf of the world. I hope for a US president elected at the end of the year who, for whatever reason, is not hostile to liberal democratic institutions. All right, let's quickly turn to Australia. What's an expectation for us, Richard? Well, my expectation is that we're going to be tested you know, the reshaping of the world will grind on, driven by these large structural forces that we've been talking about, sometimes more slowly, sometimes more quickly. But it's a process we can expect to be punctuated by regular crises and large events that will challenge our foreign policy settings, and likely more so, more regularly, certainly than in the past. And I don't know what that particular crisis will be. The list of possibilities is long but there almost certainly will be something. And I think indeed it's cautionary than none other than the US National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, was unlucky enough to write that the Middle East was more stable than it had been for two decades, just weeks before Hamas's deadly raids into Israel. Indeed, indeed. 
Well, I'm going to cheat for my answer to this one, Richard, as my challenge is already unfolding, but it'll, it will allow me to bang a familiar drum. Another dear friend of the podcast, the ABC's Stephen Jedgetts, tweeted yesterday from Senate Estimates, which are happening this week, that the head of ONI, Andrew Shearer, had said something to the effect that Australia's landmark agreement with Tuvalu, the Falapila Union, is in trouble. Now, we don't need to hear this from Andrew Shearer. You can infer this from the news anyway, as there was an election recently and one of the front runners for PM in the post-election negotiations has publicly said he would scrap the agreement. The negotiations are close to being finalised. They may indeed be concluded by the time we publish this episode. But my point, and this is my perennial one, is that domestic politics in our region will be a challenge, as it always is, for Australia. And how you manage it is very tricky. Influence without interference. But look, given how significant these factors are to the success of Australian foreign policy, it's a reminder of how important our presence is in these countries to give policymakers in Canberra the richest possible picture of what is happening. And I would add to this, don't forget that there are elections happening and to come. You know, the votes are being counted in Indonesia's election right now, and we have India's in a few months. So domestic politics will be a challenge. What about a hope, Richard, for Australia? Well, my hope goes to Australia's future as as secure generally and as prosperous we are, there's been a drumbeat of opinion in recent years that we are not doing what we really need to do to secure our future. And if you look at the sort of long list of things to do domestically and internationally, balancing the budget, fixing the tax system, solving our productivity challenge, solving the housing challenge, environmental change, the very large clean energy transition we are embarking on, all those hard international issues we've spoken about. Our adversarial system of politics, new media landscapes, globalisation, polarisation, the sheer difficulty of many of these issues, they all combine in ways that make deep reform and innovation a hard sell. Now, I'm not saying that we take the politics out of our politics. We shouldn't do that for the health of our democracy. But too often, when it comes to the major policy debates in Australia, we see uh, short-term political self-interest trumping longer-term national interest. So my hope, not an original one, is that we can find some ways to do better because in this era, we need this kind of leadership to build Australia's resilience and our prosperity. So there's your point on leadership again, Darren. Mm, mm. Well, for me, and this really is a continuation of my challenge point, As most of the listeners will know, we have a new development policy, which I discussed with Bridie Rice, who heads up the Development Intelligence Lab here in Canberra, late last year on the podcast. I'd note that the lab has its own podcast called The Readout, which is essential listening on these issues. But in conversations I've been having over the past few months, especially with Bridie, actually, I've really begun to appreciate how sophisticated development policy can be and should be. By the end of this year, stemming from the new development policy, DFAT is supposed to come up with individual plans for every country where we spend aid money. And these plans not only have to be tailored to local needs and conditions and interests, but we need to be able to tie them together across the breadth of Australia's development policy and our foreign and strategic policy. And that is a mammoth task. And that's even before you drop in the heavy boulder of geopolitics into the water, which complicates things further. But so much of our foreign policy success, especially in our near abroad, is going to require this on-the-ground knowledge of politics and a development assistance program that is sensitive to politics, to geopolitics, but also does good things besides. So my hope And to some extent, it's an expectation as well, is that this process is given the seriousness it deserves, but that those of us watching from the sidelines develop a more, I guess, a a deeper appreciation of the complexity and the importance of development policy to Australian foreign policy. Okay, we are in the home stretch, Richard. Before we get to recommendations, it's been my practice when a guest has come on for the first time since I restarted the podcast to invite them to share a memory or reflection on Alan, and and you were close with him, so I'd love to ask for you to share one now. Well, thanks, Darren. 
I did work with Alan professionally in a number of capacities, including sitting in the National Security of Cabinet and watching him uh, while he was head of ONA, where he was always definitive and masterful in the advice that he would give to governments about what was happening in the world. But I have to say that my favourite memories are of sitting with him in the corner of the coffee shop we used to go to in Yarralumla, where we would just shoot the breeze. And, you know, we all know he had a very fine mind and was a brilliant analyst, but as a person, he was also incredibly decent. He was kind and generous, as I said to someone after he died. He, in many ways, he was the best of us. And he always had time for others, no matter how busy he was, to have a coffee, to read a draft, to chew over a foreign policy problem. He was happy to share from that long and great repository of practical experience and scholarly learning that he had. He did not take himself too seriously, which is a quality that I admired. And he was good fun to be around. You know, he told a good story and he was capable of a quiet laugh either about himself or one or other of the absurdities that life throws at us, especially in senior jobs in the public service. So, you know, that is my memory. The two of us, you know, propped in the corner of the cafe with a good cup of coffee, just talking. Thank you. Thank you. Well, reading, listening and watching what's been on your lists lately. Right. Well, as is, I have a very bad habit of having a lot of books on the go and struggling to finish them all. But anyway, I've started reading Josh Rogan's Chaos Under Heaven. It's a few years old now. I have been meaning to get to it for a while. And I'm reading it because, well, it's about the Trump administration and China during Trump's presidency. And of course, well, you know, you never know. I might need <laughs> to revisit the experience. And I haven't got very far into it, but it's a, it's a rollicking read so far as you would expect. However, to end on something completely different, I have just finished reading Lawrence Durrell's book, Bitter Lemons, which dates all the way back to 1957. And I picked it out of my late mother's bookcase over Christmas and wanted to read it mostly because I knew that she would have. Well, it's a book from a different age, but it's perhaps not completely irrelevant to current times. The book's not a novel, although Durrell was a very fine novelist. It's a part travel memoir, part love letters to Cyprus, where Durrell lived for a while, part foreign policy or political thriller. Because Durrell was in Cyprus when the desire of Greek Cypriots for enosis or union uh, with the state of Greece took a violent turn. And then over some years, one set of events after another ultimately, of course, culminated in Turkey's military intervention in Cyprus and the partition of the island. And one thread running through Durrell's narrative is whether things could have been different, whether better leadership, especially from Britain, could have managed the complex forces of history, culture, religion and politics that were, were at play to, to a happier ending than the one we got. And that's something worth thinking about when we look at our own fault lines across the world today. And then once again, it brings in that leadership point, which seems rather accidentally, Darren, to have become our motive for today. Indeed, indeed. Oh, I'll also take things in a very different direction. Anyone who follows me on Twitter will probably know I don't tweet much anymore. But recently, I came out of my hiatus to support one of the most delightful things I've seen in a long time. A few weeks ago, Tracy Chapman, the musical artist, who wrote and re released the song Fast Car in the late 1980s, which is probably a top 10 all-time song in my view. She performed on stage live at the Grammy Awards. Now, she hasn't performed a concert in over 15 years. Last year, a TV performance live in 2015, I think with David Letterman's final show. And this occasion, she performed with the country star Luke Coombs, who many of you may know actually covered her song, and achieved significant chart success in 2023. Now, the song, if you don't know it, you should listen to it immediately. It's about economic aspiration amid the cycle of intergenerational poverty. It's heartbreaking and uplifting at the same time. But what is so special was the performance on this occasion and the dynamic on stage, you know, the pure joy radiating from Chapman and her smile, and also how 
completely and utterly deferential Coombs was to her. You know, you can see joy on his face, but you can also equally see admiration, respect, and even awe for being there with her. He clearly reveres her as much as I do, as much as millions of others do. And it was fitting that Fast Car and her album um, rocketed to the top of the charts for the first time in three decades in the days following um, that performance, which is great because a whole new generation can savour um, her wonderful music. Richard, thank you. We've been here for ages, but I've loved every minute of it. Um, and I'm really grateful that you've come on to help get me started again for the new year. Uh, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Well, thanks, Darren. Good luck for the rest of the year. And I, I look forward to staying in touch with the podcast. Well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. I thank Walter Konagi for doing everything behind the scenes to help make this happen. And of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>